But today, uh, we are going to be looking at the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. And we're actually going to be taking a look essentially at chapters 1 through 3. So this is a a pretty broad overview, but um, we'll read from Genesis 1, uh, 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. If you would please pray with me. Father, we come to you um, broken and weary vessels. Lord, and we ask that your word would speak to us this morning, just as your word spoke uh, all of creation into existence. Lord, that it would speak alive and afresh in our hearts today. Uh, that we would see you, uh, that we would see you in a way more intimate, maybe than we've, we've never seen you before. We pray that you would bless our time and that you would bless your word. We pray these things through the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Christ. Amen. I want you to imagine living in a kingdom, okay? And in this kingdom, there are lush, beautiful gardens um, with fruit trees and all kinds of different vegetables. And all of these things are there for your taking. They're free. You don't have to pay anybody anything. They're yours. And the fruit trees, they never stop bearing fruit. They continually bear fruit. The vegetables... They continually bear and bring forth food and nourishment. But you not only have all the food that you can eat, you you also have a home that the king has provided for you. A place to live, a place for you and your family to grow and to flourish. And again, you don't have to pay any money for it. It's just given to you. This kingdom is run by one king, and he's a good king. He desires for all of His people to be provided for and to flourish. He wants His people to be His representatives to all of the land and to the surrounding kingdoms around His. And not a single person lives in this kingdom without being intimately known by the King. And not a single person goes without being loved and cared for by the King. Now imagine that out of nowhere, there's a group of people in this kingdom and they decide that they want to overthrow the king. Though they've received nothing but the king's love and his kindness and his goodness and his provision, they now want to take over the kingdom. Would you want to be a part of the people that are taking over the kingdom? Or would you want to be a part of the people that are on the side of the king? The part of the people that desires to be with the king and seek to be under his shelter and his provision and his guidance? Or do you want to be someone who wants to overthrow the king? This is kind of a similar story that we see in Genesis 1 through 3. Today we're going to kind of take a step back and look at the Bible from sort of a bird's eye view. Just as with any other story, there are major categories and themes in the Bible, and different acts, one might even say. And many theologians have looked at the entirety of the Bible, and they've seen that it's split up into four major acts. Creation, uh, fall, 
or rebellion. I prefer rebellion because I don't think that Adam and Eve just fell into sin. They actively rebelled against God. Uh, Redemption and restoration. And then a consummate kingdom, consummation. The creation account that we find in Genesis 1 and 2, followed by Adam and Eve's rebellion in Genesis 3, leads us to the promise of redemption. So we see that the Bible lays out these major acts right here at the very beginning. It sets up the, the story, as it were, to continue on. But here's one thing that we must also understand about the Bible. It's not just another story. It's God's Word. It's the only rule for faith and practice in the life of the believer. And we do not just get a story in Genesis 1-3. through We get an accurate account of history as it happened. It tells us about who we are and where we've come from. So with this backdrop, we'll seek to engage the first three chapters of Genesis and see the truth of our reality as humans created in God's own image and set in this world to be His vice-regents over all of creation. And we'll see how we messed it all up and how we need someone to come and redeem us out of that mess. Out of the mess from our state of sin and misery and bring us back into the grace and mercy of a loving king. The first thing that I want to do is take a look back at the verses that we just read. Uh, Genesis 1, 1 through 2. And we'll read over it again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We see that the Bible begins with God. Uh, He's presented to us in these first two verses as being the creator, the one who creates all things. We're told that He created the heavens and the earth. And we must first recognize um, that the first readers of this account would have been the Exodus community, would have been the people that were brought out of slavery in Egypt. So they would have been the first readers of this. Um, And what they would have thought in reading this is they would have said, You mean God is the one who created everything that's around me? Everything that I see in the skies, everything that I see in the land, everything that I see in the seas. And He proved Himself to them that that He has control over it by, by parting the Red Sea, right? He's brought them out and He's parted the Red Sea. So God has proven that He has control over creation. But in reading this, they would have seen, oh wait, not only does He have control over it, He made all of it. It's all His. We also see that the earth does not have form. It contains nothing. It's a void. So, God is presented as one who takes nothing and He makes something out of it. The historic term that's been used for this uh, to refer to creation is ex nihilo. Um, it's, It's Latin for from nothing or out of nothing. God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, just by the word of His mouth. He created all of it. Genesis 1 goes on to spell out how God created everything. And how He created everything in the space of six six days. He created the seas. He created vegetation. The creepy crawly things on the ground and the beasts of the field of the earth. How He created the distinction between light and darkness, day and night, and the birds of the air. And God's creation culminates in verse 27. 
So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over there. It's also in your bulletin as well. And this is, this is what we read in, in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If you're looking at your Bibles, you, you notice that this particular verse uh, takes kind of a poetic form. Um, it's, it's set out from the rest of the narrative. And, and the reason that it's that way is to set it out to us. Is to show that, hey, you need to pay attention to this right here. This is a pretty big deal. Okay? After God creates everything, all of the earth, all of the land, all of the skies, all of the seas, all of the animals, He sets out to create one in His own image. He sets out to make a creature that bears His image. God thinks so highly of this part of His creation that He says He's created in my own image. What does it mean that God created man in His own image? What does that mean? You ever thought about that? That God would be so loving as to create man and give him His personal imprint. Well, I think it means several things. Um, one, of the, one thing that it means is it means that every human being bears the image of God. Every human being. We are all descended from Adam and Eve. Therefore, every human being, Christian, non-Christian alike, bears God's image. Therefore, it means that every human being has worth. Every human being has dignity. Every human being is unique and deserves the right to life. Because God is the one who's breathed life into man. And it also means that we reflect God as well. We reflect some of His characteristics. We reflect those things about Him. And I think that a lot of, a lot of times it can maybe be easy for us to point those things out in the context of the church. Uh, but have we ever thought about what it means that people even outside of the church reflect God's image? When I was living in, in Nepal several years ago, um, I went on, I guess you could say, kind of a, a hiking trip at the, at, at the base of the Himalaya Mountains. And, uh, and it was really hot. It, it was summer. And, uh, and, and it was so hot that uh, people would wake up at like 4 o'clock in the morning and start their work day. And at about 9 or 10 o'clock, they would stop. And they would wait until the evening again to pick back up their work day. That's, that's how hot it was. And it just was beaten down on you um, day after day after day after day. And, and I got really sick while I was there. And it was just me uh, and one of our national partners that was there. Um, this random guy out in the middle of nowhere in Nepal. Um, I don't speak the language. Uh, and, and, I, and I'm really sick. But we have to hike probably about 28 miles to get to, where, to, to get to where we need to go and to get to the next stopping place where we can get picked up and brought back to the city. So we set out on this, on this endeavor, on this hike. Uh, we run into one village uh, where they, in the life of almost everyone in the village, they had never seen someone foreign come into the village. So I was... I, I was uh, you know, kind of a circus act for them, as it were. 
coming coming into the village, who is this random weird guy uh, who's showing up here, and and he's sick too, and so we keep going and we keep going, and I'm just getting beat down and beat down and beat down, and it's so hard, and I'm getting to the point where I, I like I, I'm kind of coming in and out of consciousness almost, uh, and. And, and, and we're on that last leg of getting to where we need to go. And I looked at my friend and I said, I can't, I can't go anymore. I just I can't do it. And about that time, we came up on, on, a, on a little home. And uh, I don't remember a lot about that evening, but I remember that they, they took us in. Um, and uh, they, they made a bed for me. They made a pallet for me. And they assigned... Uh, their daughter, who I think it was probably about 13, 14 years old, to take care of me. Uh, and this, this young woman brought me food. Uh, she brought me water. As I said, I'm kind of slipping in and out of consciousness. And I, and I do remember one thing. She stayed with me all night long. She stayed with me. She took care of me. Uh, she made sure that I was going to be okay. She cared for me. She didn't know who Jesus is. She never heard of him before. But because she bears the image of God, she has care and concern. And to this day, I still don't know her name, but, but, but I remember her just being such a loving uh, caretaker for me in that moment and thinking in that moment, where does something like this come from? from someone who doesn't necessarily know the love of Jesus. It comes from the reality that she's created in God's image. And she in some way is reflecting that image. She, she knows that it's a good thing to care and to love people and to take care of people when they're hurting and they're in pain. She knows that there is worth and there's dignity in human life. She knew that about me. And she wanted to see me flourish. She wanted to see me get better. But maybe you're here today and you've never really been told that you have worth. You've never really been told that you have uh, dignity or, and, and that you're unique. Maybe people have actually made you feel worthless. And you feel that you don't really have dignity. But this story, Genesis 1, 27 and really the creation count as a whole, reveals to you that you're not worthless. The Lord created you in His own image, and you have worth, and you have dignity. You're worth so much that God would think to create you in His own image. And by virtue of that, that gives you worth, and gives you dignity, and makes you unique from anyone else. Maybe you're here today, and you've heard this story a lot. You've grown up hearing this story. But let me ask you, has it truly sunk in with you? Has this sunk in with you when you look at other people? Do you look at other people and think of them as someone who bears the image of God? If you're a Christian, do you look at non-Christians as some sort of project that you're trying to mend and save? Or do you look at them... And you see them as being something of worth in the eyes of God because they bear His image. Because He's created them in His own image. And therefore, they're not some project for you to mend. 
but a person created in God's image for you to love and to care for. This story tells all of us that God is someone who cares and loves because He makes things out of the overflow of His love. And He creates humanity in His image, which is pure, true, holy, and loving. But there's more to the story, isn't there? It doesn't stop here. Let's look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17. It's not in your bulletins, but I want to bring it out to you. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We see that after God has created man in His own image, He gives him duties. He gives him work to do. We skipped over a little bit there, but one of the things that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is that um, God. it tells us of how God uh, breathed life into man. Um, and he gave him a purpose to be fruitful and to multiply and to have dominion over the other things that God has created. Essentially, God calls man to be his representatives to the rest of the world and to steward over God's creation. That's the sense of dominion that we have there. It's not necessarily to dominate and control, but to be a good steward of what the Lord has given us. And that's what man is called to do. He's given those tasks. But he's also uh, given the task to obey a certain command. You see, God takes Adam and he puts him into a deep sleep after Adam has looked at everything and he said, you know, there's just not someone like me and I need someone like me. And God recognizes that too. And, and he takes him and he creates Eve. He creates woman for him who is his complement in every way. Who is his complement emotionally, who is his complement physically, in every single way. And God looks at them and he says, you are to be fruitful, you are to multiply, and you are to be my representatives to all of my creation. And then there's this one thing. There's this tree. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. I don't want you to eat from that tree. Because the day that you eat of that tree is not going to be good for you. So God gives them this command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in Genesis 3, we see the tragic turn in this story. Let's look at verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, but I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. We see this tragic turn. Because up to this point, all we've gotten is, is good things. A good creation that God loves and He cares for. And He creates man in His own image to be His representatives to all of the world, everything that He's made. And we know as soon as we start reading this, it's not going to turn out well. We know that. And there's a few questions that we should have walking into this text. One, what in the world is a talking serpent doing in a garden? Two, why would Adam and Eve, being given all of these good things by God, choose to disobey the one command that He had given them? The truth is, we have no idea why there's a talking serpent in the garden. Or why Adam and Eve would look at all of the goodness in the world and choose to trade it for the false promise of power. Because that's really what's at the heart of it here. Is that you will be God. If you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will be your own God. But one thing is for sure that we should walk away thinking from this particular portion of this story. There is something totally irrational going on here. There is something totally absurd going on here. Back to thinking about the original Exodus community, because they were the first readers of this. And the same can be said for us as we read this story too. We see that a talking snake is totally absurd. And even more absurd is the reality that Adam and Eve would choose to disobey God and seek to be their own God And now, through their sin, we all experience a world wrought with the absurdity of the evil of sin, both in our own lives and in the lives of the ones that we love. So, we know that we are heirs of our first parents who decided to rebel against God. We also know in our heart of hearts, because we can have a tendency to look at this story and say, you know what, I wouldn't have done what Adam and Eve did. But we really know deep down in our heart of hearts, we would have done the same thing. We would have sought to have power. We would have sought to be our own gods. Because none of us really like being judged, do we? None of us really like someone telling us what to do. We know that deep down in our own heart, we would have done the same thing. Rather than live under the care of a kind and loving ruler we would have sought to be our own rulers. And so we too share in the sin of Adam and Eve. And the Bible later on talks about that as well, and we'll get there a little bit later, about how we do share in their sin. But one thing that we do know now, Adam and Eve have sinned, and sin is in the world. We know that from our experience, don't we? 
Death is now in the world. On the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We know that that very, very real, and in a very real sense, and we also know that in our own personal lives, um, there, there's a sense of shame, a uh, sense of, of guilt about things. I remember, actually not too long ago, it was our, it was our last uh, year of seminary. And, and Carrie and I were really hitting the pavement hot trying to find a call. Um, and, you know, find a place where we could go and we could, we could minister um, and to be honest with you, not a lot of stuff was turning up. Um, and, and, and I got this thinking in my head, what if we have to move back home and move in with our parents, with my parents? And, and the reality is, in that moment I was afraid. I had fear. So I went to my wife, my loving my wife, my caring wife, who all of you know is a much better person than I am. Um, and instead of telling her, Carrie, I'm afraid, I posed a hypothetical question to her. I said, Carrie, what would we do? What would we do if we graduated seminary and we didn't have a call and, and we had to move back in with my parents? How would you feel about that? And essentially taking my own fear and my own afraidness and casting it onto her. And expecting her to somehow have the answer for all of this. And so ensued this really intense discussion. Um, even a fight, one might say. All because I was afraid to tell her that I was afraid. Shame got in the way. I was ashamed to be afraid. The sin in my heart and in my life had really hit me to the core and it was controlling me in that moment. And rather than coming to my wife and saying, you know what, I'm really scared about this and, and, and I really need you to love me and I really need you to pray for me and be with me because I am scared. I am afraid. No, instead I just cast it on her. And ended up blaming it on her too. Much like Adam does here, doesn't he? Actually, Adam really blames it on God, doesn't he? Adam says, it's the woman that you gave me. She's the one that made me do this. And in turn, Eve blames it on the serpent. We don't really like to take responsibility for our own sin. Now that sin has entered into the world in a very real, real way, we feel the effects of that in our own lives. And we feel the effects of that in the lives of those we love and in just in the lives of others. But what I want to ask you is, where are the parts of your life that are marred by the effects of sin? That are marred by the effects of living in a world with sin? How do you allow shame and fear to control your life. Where are those areas in your life? Are you afraid to admit that you're not really in control? Do you try to control everything going on around you? Parents, do you try to control your children's lives? 
So much so to the point that you don't even let them live their own life. Are you insecure about who you are? Do you, do you look at your life through the lens of this sinful world and somehow seek to patch it back together on your own? Where do you find your identity? Do you think of yourself as being unlovable and unworthy and therefore believe, believe that lie and, and just push everybody else away? I'm not worth it. Are you always trying to fulfill some kind of image? I mean, maybe you're here and you feel the effects of sin and the pressure that you feel to be the cool kid at school. Or to be that person who just has to be better at everything than everyone. Because it's not okay for you to just be who you are and it's not okay for you not to be the best. That's what sin has done to our lives. And though this is a very devastating part of this story, and we should be devastated by it, the good news is that the story doesn't end there either, does it? Let's look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. If the story ended with the first 13 verses of Genesis 3, then we would be left in a world that's wrought with sin and misery and without any hope. But the beauty on the other side of misery is that God does not leave us without hope. In response to Adam and Eve's disobedience, God has every right to just be finished with them. To wipe them off the face of the earth. To just be done with this whole thing. But we remember something about God, don't we? He's loving. He's caring. He's kind. He's merciful and He's gracious. He promises not to leave them in their sin, but to bring them a deliverer. And we see this in Genesis 3.15. Let's look back at it one more time. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says to the serpent and to Adam and Eve, your sinfulness is not the last word here. I will have the last word. And my last word is redemption. From here on out, there's a war being waged between the sinfulness of humanity, the sinfulness of the serpent is what we get here, and the redemption of God the Creator, the One who made all things. And we see the fulfillment of this promise in Genesis 3.15 in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see this in the Gospel accounts. If you look back at our call to worship today from John chapter 1, you notice some similar words there. In the beginning. 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's talking about Jesus. The Apostle Paul speaks of this specifically in Romans chapter 5. And I'm going to turn there real quick and just read a little bit of it to give you a connection between uh, this, this sinfulness of Adam and Eve and the redemption brought through Christ. Uh, Paul talks about it, looking at verses 18, 5, 18 through 21. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, talking about Adam's trespass there, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Though sin has entered into the world, God has not left us without hope, but has provided our only hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who purchases righteousness on our behalf. We lost that righteousness in the garden. And if we are in Christ, we're no longer heirs of Adam, but we're heirs of God. And we're heirs of His righteousness. And we're heirs to His promises. You see, the heir to the promise through Adam and his sin is death and destruction and misery and hurt and pain. But the promises in Christ are life. Abounding life. Love. Mercy. And grace. Thinking back to the story about mine and Carrie's fight in the last um, year of seminary. I tried to process through through that um, through that fight and, and through why 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 would I try and cast the blame on my wife here? Why, why why would I try and push this over to her? Why would I do that? And the truth is that I did feel ashamed. I felt ashamed for being afraid. I did allow my sin to control me in that moment. But here's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is, is that Christ has purchased our righteousness and He's given us the freedom to live life as we're truly meant to live it. And I actually really have the ability in that moment because of the Holy Spirit that instead of casting it upon my wife and pushing it to her, I can look at that sin and I can say, you don't own me. I'm not yours. I'm Jesus's. You don't get that from me. You don't get to drive a wedge between me and my wife and our relationship. No. I'm to trust in the Lord and His provision. We can look at our sin. We have the power, if we are in Christ, to look at our sin and say, you don't get that part of me. Not this time. I've been purchased with a price. I've been bought with blood. And you don't have control over me anymore. I submit to Christ and His righteousness.
I'm a child of God, not a child of sin. And this time, you don't get to wedge your way into my life. And all of this is by the grace of God. Remember we said earlier, He really has every right as the Creator of all things that when, when Adam and Eve rebel against Him to just be done with it all. But in His grace, He says, no, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to purchase life for you again now that you've entered into death. So, thinking about that imaginary kingdom again that we started with. Are you here today and believe that you would rather be a part of the people that desire to overthrow the king? You think you want to be in that camp? I would encourage you to really examine the ramifications of that, of what that means. Because that decision will always end in sin and misery and guilt and shame just driving a wedge between you and everything else in your life. The only way to have life is to be part of the people who would seek to defend the king. To be on his side. You see, the war has been won in the finished work of Christ. The king has stepped down into humanity and said, I'm going to take care of this myself. Death no longer has a hold over those who belong to the king. Maybe you're here and you're on the side of the people who are for the king, but you have a hard time seeing the hope sometimes. In the midst of those times, we should be encouraged by God's word and the community of God's people to speak the truth of that word into our lives. To speak true hope that God has promised us life and life abundantly. And it's been purchased by Jesus. You don't have to do anything for it. You can't do enough for it. You can't earn it. Jesus had to come and purchase it for you. Submit to Him. Repent. Turn to the Lord. And as children of God, we we can now look at whatever shames us and makes us afraid and makes us insecure and the things that we seek to put our identity in, our idols in our lives, we can look at those things and and we can say, you don't own that. You no longer have power over me. I'm a child of God and I find my security in Him. I'm a child of God and He pleads on my behalf. Therefore, I have no need to fear. I have no need to allow shame to control me. You don't have a grip on me anymore. I am free in Christ to live in Him. Now the next part of this story, we've gone through creation, rebellion, God's promise of redemption. The next part of this story, we we get to see and we get to proclaim in, in the sacrament of communion. The promise that Jesus is going to come back one day and He's going to make all things right. You see, we know obviously by our experience, we're, we're in this tension, aren't we? We live in a world that is wrought with sin. There are times where, where, where sin does get the best of us. And then there are times where it doesn't. 
But God promises that Jesus is coming back and He's going to bring us into a kingdom under the rule of a king where sin will be no more, where death will be no more, misery will be no more. And, and, he, and he asks His people, He says, Do this until I come back. Proclaim my body and blood until I come back. And so that's, that's part of the reason we, we take communion every Sunday. To proclaim the body and blood of the Lord. To say, sin, you don't have power over me anymore. Jesus has purchased life for me. Whichever camp you may be in, know this. The story of Genesis 1-3 through and the Bible as a whole is that God is good. He created everything you see. And though man has marred that creation, God longs to see it restored and brought back to life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have not left us in our guilt and in our sin and in our shame, uh, but you, You have promised us hope. You've promised us hope in the work of Your Son, Jesus, who... Though He knew no sin, He became sin on our behalf that we might be Your righteousness. Lord, help us to be a people that would long, uh, that would long for Jesus and not long to stay in our sin, but would long to have life and to have life in Christ alone. We pray these things in His name. Amen.